0: If you showed up here for church and you arrived at Sunday school, then I'm sure I'm not the first one to tell you that you just blew your only opportunity this whole year to get an extra hour of sleep last night. And you lost an hour in the spring, and then next spring you're going to lose another hour, so now you're forever going to be behind on sleep by one hour. All right, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Our gracious God, we thank You for Your Word. It speaks to us, it is clear, and You have stooped to communicate to us in Scripture, and we're so very thankful for that. We know that this book is is, uh, very relevant at all times and to all people. And we pray this morning that we would see that relevance, that we would see what is in there for us to behold. We thank you that your word addresses the issues of life, the things that we see going on around us. We know that uh, you have communicated to us so that we might know how we are to live in these times. And we pray that you would give us grace to do that very thing. We pray that you would bless our time and our study today, that you would be honored and glorified through the teaching of your word. Both here and in our worship service to follow, that you would be glorified among your people. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Nobody else said they wanted to do anything, and like three people said they wanted to go through Romans 1 this morning, so that's what we're going to do. Romans 1 1, as it were. Not Romans 1 1, as in the reference, but Romans 1 1, W O N. Now you get it right in Romans one, one. Now, there's three options. We could do a question and answer, which we haven't done in a long time. Remember these three options? Or I told you we could talk about preaching and the difference between expository preaching and topical preaching and other forms of preaching, and then I would argue why nothing that is not expository is really truly preaching at all. Or Romans one. And a few people said they wanted to go through Romans one. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And we're going to be taking a larger portion of text. We're going to actually be begin at verse 18 and i'm going to set up a little bit of context and we're going to uh sort of go through the end of the chapter and i know that that is that is a large portion of text far more than cornell has been doing far more than of course i'm used to doing and so obviously we're not going to be able to stop and and dive down and get into the minutia of some of the details of this but i do we do want to catch sort of the vast uh, the comprehensive approach uh get a vast overview of this entire chapter and and sort of see the in a in a big picture way, the progression that Paul describes here in Romans one, and um I don't have this in my notes, but I do want to address the issue. Is Romans one describing individuals, or is Romans one describing nations and cultures and peoples, or is Romans one just describing a a process or a progress that takes place when people reject God? So we're kind of kind of do an overview. We'll read the entire chapter first, and then we'll sort of stop start at verse eighteen. And we'll go through, catch some of the details, and and kind of uh, work our way through what Paul is describing here. Beginning at verse 18, we'll read the, the, the entire rest of the chapter first. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature, Have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind, to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, Disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. All right, so we started verse 18, but obviously we're jumping in sort of in the middle of an argument of thought there. Uh, Romans really is Paul's exposition of the gospel, so let me give you a few things to kind of set up the context. In the first 17 verses, the Apostle Paul introduces himself and talks about his desire to eventually go and uh, visit the Roman Christians, uh, Christians, the Christians who are in Rome. He talks about that desire, and if perhaps by the will of God I may find it, God may allow me to come visit you. But in the meantime, he's writing this epistle. He says in verse 16 that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. From one degree of faith to another. One degree of glory to another, as it were. Uh, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, Dale and Barb just came in, so you guys must have missed your hour of sleep, right? They did. They're nodding their heads. There you go. Okay. It's not church. We're in Sunday school now. Welcome to Sunday school, Dale. And <laughs> still late. Even though he was an hour early, he's late. <clears throat> Okay, so verse uh, 17 and 18, Paul introduces the gospel. And then what follows, beginning in verse uh, or verse uh 16 and 17, Paul introduces the subject of the gospel. What follows from verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way through to the end of chapter 15 is Paul's exposition, his explanation of what the gospel is. And he begins with bad news, beginning in verse 18 all the way through chapter 3. I think it's verse 20, 24... 24, 26, somewhere in there, is the the proclamation of the bad news. And he talks about sin and the consequences of sin and the judgment of God upon sin and the wrath of God being revealed and what that looks like. And he um indicts Jews and he indicts Gentiles, saying to the Gentiles that they failed to live up to the law of God which is written in their conscience. Saying to the Jews, they failed to live up to what the law of God written on tablets. And that all men have sinned. And Paul sort of ends that in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 21. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that is that whole comprehensive treatment of sin and its nature and its character and how it is an offense to God. Two full chapters on just that subject of sin and its consequences. It begins with the bad news. That's what we do when we work through the gospel. We share the law with people before we share grace with people. We walk people through the Ten Commandments. That's what Paul does in the book of Romans. He's he's walking people through the commandments, showing them that men have failed to live up to the law of God, whether it's written on their heart or written on stone tablets, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, beginning in verse 18, this is where Paul introduces the subject of sin and the wrath of God. So let's start in verse 18 with that as our context. Start as verse 18. Oh, by the way, I said that beginning in verse 18 all the way through the end of chapter 15 is Paul's exposition of the Gospel. Do you remember what else is contained in this exposition of the Gospel other than just the knowledge of sin? It's the righteousness of God by faith, Romans 4 and 5. It is the fact that we have been uh, buried with Christ, that we have died in Him, chapter 6. It is chapter 7, our relationship to the flesh. It is that message that uh, through Christ we have victory over our sinful flesh, chapter 8, that we have been delivered in in and through Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And chapter 9 is election, God's sovereignty and election and the relationship between the church and Israel is chapter 10 and 11. All of that is tied up in walking in a manner worthy of the calling, chapter 12, having our minds renewed, the use of spiritual gifts, chapter 12, all of that is tied up in the gospel. So everything in here is the gospel. We ought not to think that we just sort of mention the gospel as we go through it, but this is an exposition really of the entire Christian life and the gospel is wrapped up in that. The gospel actually wraps around all of these aspects of life. Okay, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now we are familiar with the idea of God's wrath. It's not a popular thing to talk about in today's world because people don't like to think of God as being an angry god the the word wrath here is not the type of anger that is um, given to extremes it's not a, a type of a flash anger it is really a settled disposition against sin. it is an anger that is it is an anger that burns a wrath that burns but it is this settled opposition to sin. It's not the type of anger that you go you or I go into a sinful anger where we just sort of flash and we get angry because some guy cuts us off in traffic and we go from having a great day to having a horrible day. It's not that type of anger. It's not a flash anger. It is a settled, continual, burning indignation, a righteous indignation against sin. So the wrath of God is revealed, and the word means to not not just to reveal, but it kind of has the idea of making it known or displaying it or putting it on display or even expressing it. The wrath of God is expressed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now how, in what ways, has the wrath of God been revealed through history? Can you think of some examples of the wrath of God being revealed in history? What are the ways in which God's wrath is, is displayed or made known? Sodom and Gomorrah. Lanny had one. What's that? Oh yeah, Nebuchadnezzar coming in with the Babylonian army coming in and destroying Jerusalem. Right, the captivity. That was an expression of God's wrath against sin other examples the flood flood is a good example Carol you gonna say the flood right how about uh, even uh, was it Uzzah put out his hand to steady the ark and was struck dead that was an expression of the wrath of God Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is an expression of the wrath of God exile in Egypt what's that exile from Eden right being kicked out of the garden so we can go through the Old Testament and even through examples in the New Testament, even Ananias and Sapphira would be an expression of God's righteous indignation against sin. Okay, so any time in Scripture that we see one nation judging another nation, one nation attacking another nation, you read through the prophets, you see God's promises that I will destroy this people. I'm um, just in the middle of reading through Ezekiel right now, and you get these graphic descriptions of the justice of God that would come upon the nation. All of those are expressions of the wrath of God. The wrath of God has been revealed from the moment that God pronounced a curse in the garden all the way up and through to this present time with these, these episodes of God's judgment and wrath. But can you think of other ways that the wrath of God is revealed? How will the wrath of God eventually be revealed? In the future. The white throne judgment, right? Eternal hell is an expression of the wrath of God. The tribulation is an expression of the wrath of God. What's that? Armageddon is an expression of the wrath of God. How about today? I mean, we're sitting here in a comfortable building, uncomfortable chairs. Is the wrath of God being revealed to us even today? In what ways? What's that? Countries going south, okay. Obama, expression of the wrath of God. Right. Sickness, illness, disease, and death, all of those are expressions of or instances of the curse, and so all of those are expressions of the wrath of God, ways in which the wrath God's settled, indignation against sin is being revealed. Uh, we look forward to eschatological expressions of God's wrath, that is, uh, events of wrath in the end times. How about sort of sowing and reaping wrath? I do something bad, something bad happens to me. right? I, I drink, I smoke like I'm on fire, I drink like I'm trying to put it out, I do this for my entire life, I get to the end of my life, and I suffer all of the debilitating uh, effects of that in my body. That is an expression of the wrath of God against sin. God has, has woven into his creation consequences that when sin takes a certain progression, sin does, uh, have, has its way that we sow a seed and we reap a harvest. That is an expression of the wrath of God against sin. Every, every bad consequence and every bad thing that happens as a result of sin is an expression of the revelation of the righteous indignation of God against that sin. So He is revealing constantly His righteous indignation against sin. And verse 18 says, "It is the un- against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness." And the word means the word "suppress" there means to hold down something. Something is trying to put up. You have to put effort into pressing something down. And what are what are men pressing down? The truth, right? The truth of God which is revealed where? Was that? In the Bible? Okay, they, they know that that's true. Verse 19, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So what truth do all men know that they suppress and hold down in their unrighteousness. That there is a God, that He is the Creator, that He has created this universe, this world, and that He has created them. That is, that is the truth that Paul is describing here. Men, in their unregenerate state, suppress that truth. They hold that truth down. Now, Paul says that this, this truth, that God is the Creator, and that He has created all things, that they know this. Look at verse 19 again. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Unbelieving man knows certain things about God. Judging just from these verses, would you say that there is any such thing as a true atheist? No. People will say they're atheists, right? I don't believe in God. But the answer to that is, no, they do believe in God. Because am I going to rewrite my entire worldview and what I believe about Scripture because somebody says they don't believe in God? The truth is what? That they do believe in God. But Paul diagnoses their problem. In their their unbelief, they are suppressing that truth. They are holding that down in their unrighteousness. What motivates their suppression of the truth? It's unrighteousness. It's darkness, right? They desire to live a life that is unaccountable to God without any thought of judgment to come, without any thought of accountability. They want to live according to the lust of their flesh and their unrighteousness. They want to live that way. And so the truth about God, which all men know because God has made it evident to them, and they know it, they know it in their hearts, they know it in their minds, they suppress that truth and hold that down and reject the one true God, even though they know the truth about God. So verse 19, this is known about God, it is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. What what aspect of God's nature and character is evident within fallen man? Within fallen man. What aspect of God's nature and character is evident Within them, what is it that they know within them that God has made evident to them that's within them? Oh, conscience, Somebody said conscience? I don't know who said it? Okay, right. It's the conscience, because Paul will later on in chapter two say that the law of God is written on their hearts. Rather, right? And that law of God, which is written on their hearts, they know. When a fallen, unbelieving individual who is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, when they go and they commit the sins that are later described in this passage, when they go and they commit those sins, they do so with full knowledge that what they are doing is wrong. They know that lying is wrong, which is why they would object and be mad at you if you lied to them. They know that stealing is wrong, which is why they object if you steal from them. They know that homosexuality is wrong. They know that fornication is wrong. They know that idolatry is wrong. They have this law written on their hearts. God has made that evident to them. So their conscience is constantly bearing witness to the reality of who God is and what His law is and that God exists. And I, don't, I think that unbelieving men... Not only have the conscience written, not only have the law written on their hearts in the form of their conscience, but unbelievers know within them that there is a God. Because they live in, they live constantly in a world where they bump up against realities that they cannot explain. They know that if they're walking along a beach, for instance, and they see a watch, they know that that's not the product of time and chance. And natural processes right but they can look inside of the human cell or the circulatory system or the respiratory system or the nervous system they can look at what is inside of them they can look at the creation that is around them from as microscopic as the way that an atom functions in a molecule of water all the way up to the galaxies around us and they will suppress it is work to suppress the truth that design does not come from a designer the creation does not come from a creator that's what is evident within them that they suppress and they hold down because they know these things are true and it's hard work to suppress the truth and unrighteousness when the truth is constantly trying to pop up, right? Because they're actually living. They're wanting to live in a universe that they really can't live in. All right, so they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That, which is, it, it, that what it, it, which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it clear to them. And here, verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, and here's the example of invisible attributes, His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So let's take, the, let's take the aborigine Indian who's never heard the name of Jesus, living out in a tribe, he can't speak our language, he's never read a written book, or seen a white man. And he's sitting around his fire at night, and uh, he's worshipping demons, or he's uh, worshipping false gods or his idol, uh, living under the, the uh, auspices of a witch doctor in his tribe. He's never heard the name of Christ. Is God just in judging that individual? They've never heard the name of Jesus. Is God just? Well, according to Paul, He is, because that which may be known about God is evident to them. It's clear. God's eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly seen through what has been made. That unbelieving individual who's never heard the name of Jesus can look at the solar system around them and and arrive at an understanding that this could not have come about by time and chance, It could not have been the product of some little wooden idol that created all of this. His divine power, the the majesty of his power is evident in creation. The majesty of his divine nature is evident in creation. Unbelievers without any written revelation can understand certain things about God. There are certain things that they can't understand, but there are certain things that they can understand because God has made enough of himself evident to all men that all men are without excuse for not seeking after him. And their rejection of that, which Paul's going to describe in a little bit, the rejection of what is evident to them, and instead the embracing of an idol, which is foolishness, they are held judicially accountable for that rejection of the truth. But certain things can be known about God just from what is, uh, revealed in, in creation. Certain things cannot be known about God. Let me give you an example. Uh, Lanny, Lanny one time gave me a stick that has, is all carved. It's got, uh, uh, I think it's John 3.16, carved down the outside of it and some other little uh, figures and things kind of carved into this. He, he likes to carve in his spare time. So he took a stick and he carved it. It's like a walking stick. It's beautifully done. And then it's all uh, varnished and, and uh, shellacked or whatever you call that, where you stain it and varnish it and make it shiny and nice. And it sits in the corner of my living room over there. Now, it, if, I, if, if I just walked up and I said, hey, here's a guy. A guy made this for me and I gave it to you. What could you discern about Lanny just from looking at the stick, having never met him? What would you know about? He's creative, right? What else? What's that? He loves the Lord. You might you might be able. I don't know. You'd at least be able to discern that he has some sort of religious affiliation by doing scripture, right? You could assume that he can read because he he carved it in there. What else would you know about it? Just judging from the stick, nothing else. What else would you know? He's talented. What? Detail-oriented? Good with his hands? Patient? Ah, that's a good one. That is very good. Yeah. Right? Patient with sticks. right? We could discern that, right? Maybe that he can see. He can use his hands well. You discern that? Generous because he gave me the stick? What can you not know about Landy from the stick? Can you know his email address by looking at the stick? Phone number, how tall he is, how much he weighs, what he likes to eat for breakfast. You know any of that? There are a lot of things you can't know about Lanny just by looking at the stick. But you can discern a lot about Lanny just by judging the stick, right? That's the difference between general revelation and written revelation. From God's creation, we can learn a lot about God. That he is infinite, that he is eternal, that he is incredibly talented, that he is incredibly imaginative, that he loves diversity, that he's a very glorious being, that he's a very intelligent being, a very creative God, a very detail-oriented God, that he's very wise in what he has done. Yes? So, Ron's question, the Native Americans believe in a great spirit, so they're going to be a bunch of Indians in heaven. No, because their, their embrace of what, their, what they believed about that great spirit is not what God has revealed in scripture, or sorry, in, in creation. They, they believe in a, a being, but they do not believe in the one true, they did not arrive at the one true God by looking at creation, so they didn't seek after him. But Paul says instead they, they chose idols. Yeah, so that, that's a good, that's a good point. What Pat just brought up, their understanding of the Great Spirit is not what you would derive from creation. It is an exchange of the glory of the one true God for something that is lesser or different. So this is not to say that people who reject the one true God are necessarily all of them atheists. It's that their image of God that they embrace is a God different than the God that is revealed in creation. An Indian should have been able to look at creation and understand that their God is separate from creation and not subject to this these processes. That anybody who could speak this into existence would have the would have to himself be greater than creation and separate from, transcendent from the creation that he created. Did you have something real quick? Hold on. Polytheism and and nature worship. So a lot of times the expression of Indian belief in a great spirit is nothing more than a form of nature worship itself. Jenny. If Okay, so here's the question. The the native who sees what is in creation and rejects the religion or idolatry and wants to seek after the one true God, would he be saved? My answer to that, though not from this text, would be yes. God in his sovereignty would bring the gospel or true revelation to that individual. If mankind responds to the light he has given, God will give him more light and more light and more light. But the condemnation of Romans 1 is that no man responds to the light that he's been given. In his natural state, man does not respond to that, but instead... Uh, because he suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, he willingly exchanges the truth of God for a lie. And that's what the Indian culture has done. They willingly exchange the truth about God for a lie. But if they respond to that light by God's grace, they respond to that light, God would bring them more light. And I believe that if they respond to that light, God will bring them more light. And as long as they keep responding to that light, God will eventually bring the gospel to them. What form would the gospel take to an, for an individual who has none of the background that we do? Well, in I'll answer it this way. I don't know if this is answering your question or not. If you look at the hunts when they went into the Manhui tribe, they went in there not knowing the language. They didn't have a written language. They went and spent seven years just being with the people, learning the language, hearing the language. Then they created a written language. And then they taught the people to read the written language that they created for their language. And then they began translating Scripture into that, beginning in Genesis and telling them the entire story. And it took over a decade before anybody there showed any response to that light. But they worked for over a decade to get the gospel to them. But they had to learn the language and then set up a context in which they could understand the need for these things and eventually embrace the truth. And now there's a church there. Does that help answer the question? Well, they have no... Oh. Okay, that's the question. Is the general revelation the message of salvation? General revelation is the revelation of creation. The answer to that is no. No man can know how to be saved apart from special revelation because that is only revealed in Christ in, in Scripture. So that that revelation has to eventually come as well as general revelation. So with the analogy with the stick that Lanny gave me, the stick itself is general revelation. I can learn certain things about Lanny, but there's a whole bunch about Lanny I can't know unless I know him personally or he is revealed to me in some way. And those would be all the details of what he likes for breakfast, etc. Yeah, eventually I'm trusting the sovereignty of God to get the gospel to the native. That's right. Yeah. And by the way, it is a confident belief in the sovereignty of God that motivates people to take the gospel to the Indians. It is because it is because we believe that God is sovereign, and because we believe that God has ordained that means at that end that we become the means to take the gospel to them so i am I am trusting in the sovereignty of God to get the gospel to the nations, yeah, to, to because God is getting that message of special revelation to those people who that He has chosen and that He has loved and set His affections on and sent His Son to redeem. He is getting the message to those people by bringing them the special revelation and not just leaving them accountable. but God is in his sovereignty, is able and just also to condemn even those who never have special revelation. Because of what they do with general revelation. In other words, if you take if you take somebody who is an idol worshiper, and you say the only reason you don't trust Christ and you don't know the truth is because you never had the truth revealed to you. So here's the truth about Christ. Well, if they have taken what is true about God and God has made plain in creation, and they have exchanged that for uh, an idol, and they've exchanged the glory of God for what is not glorious, they will do the same thing with special revelation if you take it from them. They will reject that as well. Because the heart itself is, is rejecting truth no matter what form it comes to them in. Special revelation or general revelation. So Paul here is dealing with what mankind in his sinfulness does in suppressing what men know to be true about God and the results of that. So we're already man, two-thirds of the way through our class, and we haven't even got a third of the way through the text. So any other questions real quick that I can answer before we move on? Alright, verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. Look at that. They knew God. They know Him. This this is not... They're ignorant of who who God is. Paul is able to say that this person who suppresses the truth and unrighteousness knows that God exists and they full well know enough about God that they are justly accountable for their rejection of the truth. They know that there is a God, that there is one God, and they know what the truth about that God is. They're not talking about salvation. He's just talking about the ability of an unredeemed individual to know the truth about God that justly holds them accountable before that holy God. So they know God, but they do not honor Him as God, nor do they give thanks. But they became futile or empty in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So what is it that they did? They know God, but they refused to do what? to acknowledge him as God and so what is the result of that what is the result of rejecting the light that you get your foolish or vain empty heart becomes darkened so the rejection of light brings more what darkness right you get exactly what you want the the unbeliever wants darkness and that is what they get because they reject the truth and so God darkens their foolish hearts and they become more enslaved to darkness and more in darkness than they were before light rejected is light withdrawn so the individual who knows the truth about God, but refuses to honor God, refuses to bow the knee, and rejects God, gets the just wrath of God revealed against them, which is that they lose the light that they have been given, and they their foolish hearts become darkened. Verse twenty three, or for twenty two. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Now this I don't know if this describes the Aborigine down in the jungles of South America so much as it describes Almost every professor at every institution of higher learning in this country professing to be wise, they become fools. Why do they become fools? Because they reject the truth. So they cut themselves off from the truth. They have no access to the truth. And so even though they profess to be wise, they think of themselves as those who have really discovered the truth. Um, I have have relatives who are this way. They are self-professed atheists. They don't believe that God exists. They don't believe that Jesus ever exists. And so they reject the truth. This describes them. He or they think that they're very wise. think they're very smart, very scientific, very enlightened, very rational, very reasonable people. And they are the polar opposite of that. They profess to be wise, profess to be smart, rational, and reasonable people. But they are unrational and unreasonable because it is an unrational and unreasonable person that rejects the plainness of what is revealed in creation that there is a God. Verse 23, And they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling things. There's an interesting progression there and they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God. So this is, by the way, this is all the willful and active activities of those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness and are under the wrath of God. They know what's true about God and so then rather than acknowledging Him as God, they turn from that and they take the glory of God and they exchange it in place for an idol. They create a God in their own image or they create a God for themselves and they would rather worship this God then worship the one true God, because they have rejected that light. And so verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling things. I had a Bible professor, and I'll never forget this. I think it was every time I read through this. I had a Bible professor one time. He went through the history of the automobile. And he said men, when they wanted to find out um, what to name an automobile after, they started off by naming the automobiles after men. Um, The Ford Fairlane was named after a man. Josh, what's that? Etzel, okay, right. And then, then they started naming automobiles after birds. Can I give some examples? Thunderbird, right? Phoenix. Then they started naming um, automobiles after four-legged creatures. Mustang, Jaguar. That's another good one. What's that? Impala. What was that? Oh, Ram. And then they started naming automobiles after snakes, viper. Right? So what is the progression of men when they want to honor something? Men, birds, four-footed creatures, and then snakes. Now, I don't know if there's any validity to that whatsoever, but it was interesting. And he went through the history of it. He just showed, look at look at how we honor honor things. This is what happens when men reject truth. This is the devolution of a culture. We start off by honoring men. We Then we change to honoring birds, and then we honor four-footed creatures, and then we honor creeping things. There's also something interesting here. The 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 further man goes in his exchanging of the truth, the more degrading becomes what it is that he honors. Do you see that? First he honors things that fly above him, then he honors things on his level, and then he honors things that crawl beneath him. It's, you have to go further and further down in this progression. Yeah, Gene. Yeah, honor things they can't even see, right? Yeah, Acts chapter 17, a monument to the unknown god. They had a god they couldn't even see. The just-in-case God, right? The God that they honored to keep, make sure they had their had all their bases covered. Good point, just-in-case God. Okay, verse 24. So this is the exchange that goes on, right? They They know the truth, and having rejected that, they exchange the truth and begin to honor anything but the one true God. They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made after men, birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Therefore, this is the conclusion... God gave them over. Now that word, give them over, is a word that it's a violent word. It's used of somebody being given over, like Paul said, I give my body to be burned. Uh, it's a very graphic word. It's used of Christ giving himself up to death, of somebody being given over to prison, somebody being given over to judgment. Um, it, 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 is, it is not violent in the sense of doing physical violence, but it's a very aggressive and very um, active term. Burial Sea, yeah, that's a good, a good imagery. You just, you throw something over, and what is it that God gives them over to? So, when a person, culture, society, nation, whatever it is, when they reject the truth about God, God will give them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, rather than the creator. So, who is blessed forever, amen. So, those who have rejected the truth about God, God gives them over instead, since they have rejected what may be known about God, He gives them over to fulfill the lusts of their flesh. And what's being described in verse 24 and 25 is sexual immorality. Right? Every form of impurity. So, so the very first, the the very first act of judgment, as it were, when God gives over a people or a person or a nation is basically a sexual revolution. They have all sorts of sexual immorality that goes on. And this immorality becomes more and more active. It becomes more and more, uh, evident. It becomes more and more, uh, ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Uh, this is an act of judgment. When, in the 1960s and the 70s, it's looking at the history of our own nation. The sexual revolution was not the step to enlightenment or rationalism or, or, uh, you know, liberation or liberty or anything like that. The sexual revolution of the 1960s and early 70s was in fact the judgment of God upon the United States of America as God gave this nation over to the lust of its flesh. The impurity and the unrighteousness. Right? How do you know that, it, how do you know if a nation or a people have been given over to something? They become sexually immoral. So they, they just turn themselves over to that, but it is God who has said, you want, you want life without me? This is what it looks like. And the very first act of judgment is sexual liberation. Get everything I want. I get all of it that I want. I can have as much as I want. I can do whatever I want. That's not liberty. That's not liberty. That's, that's, that licentiousness is the judgment of God. Yeah, Robert. Oh, okay, good good observations. Uh, sexual impurity, there's two of these. You'll notice that God turned, gives them over three times in the passage. Verse 24, God gives them over to the lust of their hearts and to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Talk about that in just a second. And verse 28, um, God gave them over to a depraved mind. And then after verse 28, Paul lists a whole bunch of sins that we read at the end of chapter 1. It is not sexual immorality that is the cause of the giving over. Sexual immorality is the result of being given over. What causes being given over is the rejection of the truth, the suppressing of the truth and unrighteousness. And so this is the expression of the wrath of God as revealed. How is the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness in God and godliness of men? It's when God gives a person over to fulfill the lust of their flesh and says, you want life without me, you get life without me. Boom, you get sexual immorality. And it becomes rampant and pervasive. That is the judgment of God. What is that's not what causes the judgment of god what causes the judgment of god is is rejecting the truth of god which is revealed in creation this is this is the judgment of god not the cause of it this is the judgment of god we we are not a nation about to be judged we are a nation under judgment because of the progression of what we see right here in this passage all right so the very first step is a sexual revolution the very second step the second step verse 26 is a homosexual revolution for this reason god gave them over to degrading passions For their women exchanged the natural function of that which is unnatural, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of a woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So that is the second step of a a nation or people being given over, is that God gives them up to degrading passions. Not Not just the perversion of what is true, men with women in a monogamous heterosexual relationship not just giving them over to the perversion of that, but the actual inversion of it, the flipping of it. Men with men, women with men, women. This is the degrading passions. Men abandoning the natural function of women, women committing indecent acts with one another. And it's interesting that Paul begins with women, I think because he begins with which that which is really the last step of a, of a degraded and immoralized culture. In most cultures, um, women giving themselves over to same-sex relationships Is in fact one of the last things that you would expect. You see it in men far quicker than you see it in women. But once the women embrace that, that is the proof that all virtue is lost. Once the women become animals, you expect men to act like animals. Okay, but once women start acting like animals, friends, that is the, that's the, that is as low as you can possibly go. And because the culture experienced a sexual revolution, and then God gave them over because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. God gives them over. The next step is a homosexual revolution where this becomes rampant in a society or in a nation. And then the next step is in verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, right? There's, there is reasons why God is doing this. This is, this. this is God's judgment. It's not as if God is doing this just to, just to harm men. This is God giving to men what they deserve and to women and to a nation or a culture what they deserve. Oh, back up to 27. Go ahead. Okay, good question. Is the due penalty that they receive within themselves, the diseases that are associated with that are a guilty conscience? And I would say it's probably both. There are certain, remember there's a sowing and reaping wrath uh, where you sow certain things and and certain things come as a result of that. Um, The myth that our culture lives under, that homosexuality is a completely healthy lifestyle, is an absolute lie. So they do receive within their own persons the due penalty of their error you will get sexual immorality. You will get children abused. You will get uh, infections and diseases and, and and physical maladies that come as, as a result of a sexual or homosexual revolution. So they do receive a p- penalty, a due penalty in themselves. Could be a guilty conscience. I think it's both of those. Um, and I wish I had more time to go into this, but I don't want to take the time because I'm already over time. The, um, there was something about there is something about sexual sin that because it it so corrupts who we are, we are sexual creatures, that that sin affects us physically and physiologically more than any other sin. Walking down the street, you can't pick out who's a sociopathic liar, a serial killer, or a child abuser. But you can pick out a homosexual mile away. Why is that? Because the perversion of the sexual nature affects the individual, the person, more than any other sin. All the other sins that we commit are outside the body. Sexual immorality... That does something to our nature. There's something so twisted and perverse there that when the women adopt that, then that's the end of the culture. All right, verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And then he lists the things that the depraved mind is filled with and all these sins. You can see examples of this in the headlines on any given day in our nation. Step one, the sexual revolution. Step two, a homosexual revolution. Step three, a depraved mind. The word depraved means useless or futile, it's empty. It is a mind that is so darkened that it cannot think correctly anymore. You ever watch the news and ask yourself, what are they thinking? What are they thinking? This is insane. That somebody would think this way and they, they can't reason from A to B to C. There's no logical or rational capacity to think through anything logically or coherently. They cannot any longer think. They've lost the ability to think as the mind has lost the ability to operate as the mind should operate. We would expect the mind to operate. What do you say about a nation, a culture or leadership that thinks Hobby Lobby is evil, but Hamas is okay? How do you you get to that moral conclusion? How do you label Israel an apartheid state? How, How do you get to that conclusion? How do you think it's, It's it's good to introduce condoms to grade school children, but make sure the Bible is nowhere to be found. Where is that reasoning? We would call it Marxist. We would call it liberal. We would call it progressive, whatever we call it. You know what it is called? It is insane. It is the inability of the mind to function the way the mind should work. And those whose minds function according to truth, they look at it and they say, that is insane. That is not, you're you're not even thinking like a rational person anymore. You've lost the ability to reason or to even think like you should. That is the judgment of God. When you look at things going on, you say, what are they thinking? Friends, that is the evidence that we are under judgment. You talk to somebody, they cannot think any longer. That's the judgment of God. When the mind loses its ability because of its embrace of all of the sin and the rejection of truth for so long, the mind loses its ability to think any longer. And that explains what we see going on around us. Right. So when when you cut yourself off from the truth of God, the mind can no longer function the way that it should function. And it becomes so devoid of truth that it can it can no longer discern right from wrong. It can no longer think clearly because it doesn't have any it doesn't have any anchors to think clearly. And so it, whatever is happening right now is rational and we'll just go with it. Yeah, woe woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And that's the society in which we're in. And and that's what we need to move quickly here. Verse thirty two. That's the conclusion of the chapter. Although they know the ordinance of God, that is, they know that God's word says that those who practice such things, is there everything described in this chapter, those who practice such things are worthy of death and not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So there's two steps there. There is, number one, they do these things because this is the sin that they love. They live in darkness. They do these things, and then they give hearty approval to those who do them. So they encourage other people in the sin. Uh, I think it can be. In this context, I think it's the same group of people. They not only do this, but they encourage other people to do it. So they're not not only involved in this sin. There was a time in our country when you would be involved in one of these sins and you would and you would be quiet about it. Right? It was called in the closet. Now now we don't do that. Now we do these things and we parade them down the streets of San Francisco. Yep, there are and there are people who maybe I myself don't do this, but I'm going to encourage other people to do it or I'm going to applaud those who do do it. And and that is that is a, a valid observation. That's a good. That's a group of people as well. And and they. They know that these things are worthy of death. They know what God's Word says about this, and they do them anyway, and they encourage them to do them other, anyway. And some people do them and encourage other people to do them. I, the question is, do I have any uh, commentary on Tim Cook, Apple CEO, coming out and saying that he was gay? Uh, my only commentary would be Romans 1. Get ready for more of it. That's what we have to look forward to. Yeah, uh, Carol. Maybe how do you approach a nation or a culture... Uh, an individual who is is in Romans 1 I think you just got to be bold with the truth you got to be straightforward about the truth of the gospel and you use the law and the gospel they know this is true somebody says to me I'm an atheist no you're not you know you know there's a god you know he exists and you know you're accountable to him and you got to tell him the truth you can't tiptoe around it yeah look in sharing the gospel you you could start with homosexuality but what's the need to Start with the other commandments, and that becomes, because of how our culture is handled, it becomes such a stumbling block that you can't get into anything, you can debate about that issue. Are you a liar? Are you a thief? Have you stolen anything? You go through the other commandments, and, and you can kind of, you know, you can put that on the side burner and deal with that, but look, if they get saved, that will take care of itself in some ways. Uh, if they want to make that the central issue, I would say stick on central issues that you can both agree on. Right? I'm a liar too I'm a thief too I'm a blasphemer too I'm guilty of all of those sins so stay on the things on, avoid that issue because of its emotional connection because that sin once again that sin is so connected to who we are that 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 you can't even have a conversation about that anymore because of how it is so intricately intertwined with the person itself so i would say get on the get on the other things you you could deal with that if they want to talk about it but they're likely not going to want to talk about it better to to address the other things you can get further i i would say jenny you have to stick with the gospel yeah well, every uh, any modern examples of verse 23, exchanging the glory of God. I, I think any any embrace of anything other than the one true God is an embrace of a lesser God. Every television commercial ever made, every act of idolatry, everything, every example of finding my satisfaction in something other than Christ is an example of that. Hollywood, Hollywood. yeah. Gene, last one. And reinterpreting those passages of Scripture and making it justify that lifestyle is another example of just suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Because they want the sin, they love the darkness, they have to suppress what they know to be true and they know to be to be wrong. All right, very good. Let's pray. We're over time and I apologize for that. Our Father, we are so thankful again that your word addresses the issues that we see in our own lives and in, in what we see around us. Um, you have warned us and you have given us these examples in Scripture that we might take notice and that we might uh, be informed about what's happening. We thank you for that. We pray that you'd make us good communicators of the of the glorious gospel. Keep us committed to that. Uh, loving people and as we see things uh, go exactly as your word has said that they would go and are going Uh, we know that the only hope for anybody any person any culture any nation is in the gospel of christ and so we pray that you would give us opportunities to share that gospel to change hearts one by one be faithful to the truth keep us faithful to the truth in spite of all of the affliction and uh, any uh, persecution which might come our way that you would be honored through our faithfulness as we give testimony to the glory of christ in whose name we pray amen